0: Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Taking a photograph uh, might appear to be something that is the preserve of artistic expression, but it is a vital tool to science as well. When it comes to understanding the vastness of the cosmos or the structure of a cell, we rely on imagery to help us better understand the natural world around us. But how do these technologies give us the images? We're joined now by Jack Challener. He's an independent science writer and author of more than 40 science books, the latest of which is Seeing Science: The Art of Making the Invisible Visible. He joins me now. Uh, Jack, welcome to the program. In the history of 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 imaging, we have um you know these moments when when glass came about, obviously the Chinese were, were using glass back in the 2nd century, but but hadn't really harnessed it for scientific purposes as as we did uh, in Europe, and and started to make things like the telescope uh, with Galileo, and, and it was only really once we had the ability to see that we were able to make fundamental changes to our understanding of science, isn't that right? Because we, we made all these theories, but until we could really see bacteria or look at the stars and and the planets more closely, that's when we really started to to, to uh, advance our scientific knowledge, and that's kind of what you start off talking about in the book.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. In the introduction, I, uh, there's one of my favorite quotes is from Buckminster Fuller. I'm sure some of your audience will be familiar with him. <laughs> a crazy, creative guy from the 1930s and 40s. Um, and it's a quote that stuck with me. And it was one of the things that really encouraged me to, to think about writing this book. And the quote is 99.9% of reality is not apprehendable to human senses. And it's that's obviously the numbers aren't <laughs> is kind of arbitrary, but the, his point is that there's so much more out there than we can perceive. Hmm. Some of it way too small for us to see. Some of it too far away. Some of it just invisible to our senses. So you know, beyond the visible spectrum, all these forces and, and everything. And uh, and you're right about the telescope and the microscope was the first time that scientists were able to to unlock or find access to, to the hidden world of the very small or the very far away. And it gave them a chance to test new theories and discover things like bacteria. Uh, the Milky Way was suddenly not just uh, a milky substance across the sky, it was thousands and thousands of, of tiny stars that blended into one, unless you have a telescope. So, so you're right, the, forming it into lenses and making it into optical instruments was a really major breakthrough and a really important point in the history of science.
1: We we can go much further than um, bacteria now, can't we? Because those first microscopes started to show us the, the, you know, the fiber of, of 3D surfaces you know, with the structures on them. We, we began to see um, micro uh, animals and then uh, mini bacteria. But now, uh, by the 20th century, we were able to image down to an extraordinary layer of precision. Talk to us about um, the first time we, we imaged something like an atom.
0: Yeah, so... Uh, When I was growing up, I really remember being struck by something I read that uh, no one had ever seen an atom. You know, scientists still had proven that they were there using mathematics, but no one had ever seen an atom. And there was in the the textbooks when I was growing up was uh, an instrument called the field emission microscope, which is where they have a tiny, very, very sharp metal tip and ions come off it and they make an image on a on a screen above it where you can see the pattern of the atoms at that metal tip but mm. it, that's it was still, I felt cheated in a way <laughs> um, but then of course in ni- in the mid 1980s scientists at IBM invented something called the scanning tunneling microscope and it was the first of this new generation of microscopes that uh, have a have a tiny very thin probe that scans across the surface of a sample and literally traces, a bit like uh, Braille, literally traces the, the undulations of the, of the electron surface.
1: Yeah, I like to think of it as a needle on a record player.
0: Yeah, that's another good analogy. Yeah, mm. uh, and uh, and so the signal from that probe moving across the surface then is is used to create a perfectly faithful image of the atoms at that surface, and that was a big moment. But if, even before the those scanning probe microscopes, back in the nineteen thirties, scientists invented electron microscopes, and and that really opened up. As you mentioned, cells earlier on, well, suddenly they could see. Uh, mitochondria in excellent detail mm. and uh, even see strands of dna so those were unthinkable obviously to 100 200 years ago so the tools that scientists have to actually visualize and and see things that are really there they've come on in leaps and bounds and i think that's also garnered uh, an, an interest in the wider population in in science as well because some of these images are intriguing and beautiful.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I remember when I was a kid being fascinated by really high definition images of animals and then seeing bacteria and seeing what, you know, what sort of um, beasties lay in a a single drop of seawater. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We also learned how to see things that we, the human eye can't see, um, things that are ultraviolet or infrared. And these have been absolutely huge, of course, for the development of science. When did we first figure out that there was energy beyond either side of the spectrum? And, and when did these technologies uh, take hold? So quite
0: coincidentally, I always think, ultraviolet and infrared just either side of the visual spectrum, as you say, were uh, discovered a year apart from each other. Really? Um, yeah. So, first of all, William Herschel it was had some thermometers arranged along the visual spectrum from a from a prism, the sunlight spectrum, and he found that in the invisible part of the spectrum, or just beyond the spectrum, as he thought, the thermometers were still getting warmer. In fact, they were getting warmer than the others. So he realised there was some kind of radiation just there beyond the the red end so yeah. that became infrared. Beyond Very
1: the red clever end. experiment.
0: Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. And then uh, a German guy, Wilhelm Ritter, uh, the following year was looking at uh, the other end of the spectrum and he had some silver salts uh, and found that they were changed just as other silver salts were by visible light but but by some other rays that were beyond the blue end so that was ultraviolet and of course beyond that no one knew until the 1860s when james clerk maxwell if if people aren't familiar with him look him up cuz he's <laughs> he's a, a pretty cool guy who really really advanced our understanding of the world in lots and lots of ways but one of them and the main one really was that he combined equations of electricity and magnetism together everything that was known about electricity and magnetism into one single equation And it happened to be a wave equation. And the speed of that wave that fell out of the equation was exactly the speed of light. So we realized not only that light is an electromagnetic wave, but also that there must be other kinds beyond even the infrared and the ultraviolet. So that really opened up then the search for those other forms of radiation. And now we have ultraviolet cameras on, for example, James Webb Space Telescope. Sorry, infrared cameras on there ultraviolet cameras up in space and and also of course radio astronomy and X-ray astronomy and gamma ray astronomy and that's really
1: opened up things for, for astronomy in particular. We also have UV paint for midnight rays. So <laughs> yeah, you know there's do. lots of benefits from, from this sort of science for in all aspects. Absolutely. Um the second chapter of your book kind of looks at or the second part of your book kind of looks at um data and how we are starting to take these things that are unseen numbers that we gather from all the senses that are around us all over the world and turn them into visualizations. Um, Talk to me a little bit about about this. This has obviously become a huge uh, field recently, but when uh, did we start to understand how important it was to see patterns visually when it comes to turning mathematics or data into something visual like a, a graph or an animation?
0: So, I don't know whether it's surprisingly early or surprisingly (laughs) late for some people, but really, graphs didn't become an important tool of science until the late 17th century, really. So, the first rudimentary graphs of, for example, volume versus pressure of a gas were drawn out then. And I think... Then there was uh, similar uh, subjects uh, in politics and and uh, and geography. People have started using graphs there as well, but in science they're really really powerful. Because of course, if you're doing a an experiment and the result of that experiment is a is a load of numbers, then just written down the numbers make no sense at all, or they have you know they they don't have any context or any meaning. So, as, but as soon as you plot them on a on a graph, even just a simple graph, you can see correlations or trends appearing and th- and those can really help scientists to support or refute their their hypotheses. But there is one there's one graph in there just quickly that's uh, from the from the 12th or 13th century that looks like a modern graph but it was uh, it was showing the positions of the planets as they change in the sky so it was quite intriguing when I came across that.
1: We've gone from simple 2D images to startling visualizations that can take kind of raw data and give us a really clear picture of what's going on. And there's one picture of the underside of a, a Boeing 777. You can see it on our Twitter page to give you an idea of what we're talking about. But I'll, I'll describe it for you. It, it sort of looks like the, you've got the undercarriage of the plane and you've got the, the wheel down And uh, then you have this sort of uh, real uh, mess of visual data that sort of shows you the noise and turbulence of airflow as it would happen underneath the plane. Can you talk to me about this image and why these sort of really complex visual uh, ideas have become really useful in helping us understand the physics and and engineering of of, uh, things in science?
0: Yeah, uh, I think that aerodynamic simulations are always my favorite because of that word that you mentioned which is turbulence and they always look so dramatic because there's it's the only way you can really study aerodynamic complex aerodynamic situations because you can you could put that boeing landing gear in a wind tunnel or a flow tank with water going around it but you could never explore what's really going on
1: Yeah, it looks Um, like a sort of a a crunched up carpet of airflow and and being able to see how the air flows through this undercarriage um, and being able to presumably um, in real time tweak designs to make that a more smooth process and presumably less noise and less loud and and, uh, for passengers and obviously more efficient. That's a a really exciting potential of simulation when you're talking about uh, industrial design.
0: I would also say that I think scientists increasingly are choosing very dramatic ways to construct their images, particularly probably in space, especially the even the images from uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. The data that they collect is from invisible, to us, infrared radiation. They've got some vis- visible light cameras on board as well, but it's mostly infrared radiation that they're gathering, and they're producing these amazing dramatic images that almost look like, uh, well, we would imagine maybe that that's how we would see it if we could go into space ourselves and get close to these objects. But actually, it's a construction made to look like something as we would see it, but from infrared radiation. And similarly with the um, aerodynamic simulation, they use, you know, bright colours and just ways of making them look dramatic. And I think this partly to make them more eye-catching for a wider population as well as the yeah, fellow scientists.
1: But also, I suppose, to, to add texture and, and context to maybe some of the shapes, mm. gi- give them darker reds where they're hotter or more intense, for example. And uh, those sort of techniques have really allowed us to understand how things happen in the world around us. Imaging is such an extraordinary and important part of the scientific process. And it's explored in detail in the book, The Art of Making the Invisible <laughs> Visible. Jack Challoner, is the author. Jack, thanks for your time. Thank you very much.
0: Future Proof Extra
1: with Jonathan McRae,
0: proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland, on
1: News Talk.